Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Lenovo. At CDW, we get putting productivity within reach of remote employees. That's why I'm WFC, working from couch and moving everything within arm's length, like the microwave. Lunchtime. You should talk to the experts at CDW. They can orchestrate a more efficient workspace solution using light, powerful devices from Lenovo to keep your teams productive from anywhere, couch included. Yeah, but do they have grabber claws? Whoops. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Learn more at cdw.com slash Lenovo client. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water. Are we going to have enough of this stuff? How can we make more clean, fresh water? I just listened to a very interesting episode, Alchemy, Turning Milk into Water, Sustainable Water Management. And this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water, coffee, industrial practices, sustainable value chain, and social responsibilities with uh, this man, Carlos uh, Galli, who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey, everybody. Surprise. There is a new episode after all. I thought I was going to have to take a week off, but I've been working my tail off trying to keep up with these podcasts while putting this tour together. So I sure hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was a fun one. It was about laughter. And we had uh, a lot of laughs along the way of learning a lot about laughter. Really interesting conversation. And um, I'm going to be plugging my tour a whole bunch. Uh, coming up because I've never been more excited for anything. This is the best uh, show that I've ever put together. Um, It's, it's, uh, I would say two fifths stand up comedy about psychedelics, two fifths um, storytelling in my experiences and about one fifth kind of Ted talk. It's, it's a bit more informational. Um, Some of you may have seen it already before i was on tour and and, um workshopping it around the country it's even stronger now um so if you have seen it by the way go on go on facebook anytime you see me posting about it um add a comment and tell people what you thought of it so 
anyway, I'm going to read the dates um, again. Uh, I, I, I won't do this every week to you, I don't think. Um, maybe the next couple, but I'm I'm just so excited right now, and I know you guys are excited for me, and you want to see the show, so we're going to go through the dates one more time. We got um, starting October third. This is going to go through January, by the way, and there's going to be more dates added soon. So um, if I miss you, um, I, I might be adding you soon. But um, 65 cities, I'll probably be somewhere near you. So we're starting um, in Arizona, and then we're going to head. Uh, straight south to the east coast going to go up um up the east coast to the north straight north to the west coast and then we're going to loop through um the midwest and get me home to wisconsin for the holidays and then tack on a few more um a few more shows in january as well and these these shows are anywhere from some of the biggest best comedy clubs in the country to uh to coffee shops, to breweries. I'm you know, I'm doing Monday shows, Tuesday shows. So some of them smaller venues. Lots and lots of rock clubs is where the show is mostly being taken place. Um, but uh, it, it's it's going to be awesome, and I'm going to be a very busy boy. October third, starting in Arizona, Flagstaff, Tucson, Phoenix. Then I go to Oklahoma City. Then in Texas, I'm in Dallas, Houston, Austin. And then Louisiana, I'm in Shreveport, New Orleans, Mobile, Alabama, Pensacola, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, and Georgia. In Georgia, I'm doing Atlanta and Savannah, uh, Char- uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and North Carolina. I'm doing Charlotte, Raleigh, Greensboro, um, and then Richmond, Virginia, and Charlottesville, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Brooklyn. Alston, Massachusetts, in Boston, outside Boston, and um, uh, Skanexkadooskis, New York, outside of Albany. I nailed it that time. You can't tell me that's not how you pronounce it. C-H-E-N-E-C-T-A-D-Y, Skadooskalbops. It has to be. If you if it's not, why would you name your city uh, in a way that I can't pronounce or um, read? So it must be true. Makes perfect sense. Buffalo, New York, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, Madison, Wisconsin. Ooh, Madison, one of my favorite. Recorded two albums there. Comedy Club on State. That place is awesome. Um, Billings, Montana, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington. I missed Minot, North Dakota. Um, Portland, Oregon. One of my favorite places and one of my favorite clubs, Helium Comedy Club. Um, Bend, Oregon, Salem, Oregon, Klamath Falls, Sacramento, California, um, San, Fr- San Francisco. Not San Fran. You can't say San Fran. Did you know that was a thing? I found out last time I was there. Santa Cruz, California, Salt Lake City, um, and then I'm I'm looping all back through from there, going through uh denver one of my favorite clubs boulder um denver comedy works by the way man that place is amazing um if you're ever in denver go there um let's see we got iowa city Uh, i'm looping back through i'm gonna get all the way to Asheville, north carolina before coming back so we're gonna have to fill in a lot of these still so um so stuff in the middle of the country we're still filling a lot more in um 
Iowa City, did I say that? Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Royal Oak, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. And working on some other Michigan stuff. I also have um, also working on um, uh, Winona, Minnesota. I have Appleton, Wisconsin, and uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I think it's close to locked up. Uh, Des Moines, Iowa is, is locked up. There's a, there's a lot more stuff um, that is not quite on my website yet, but it's being updated all of the time. So please go to shanemoss.com. Go to the uh, go to the tour, a good trip tour. If you have anyone that you think would be interested, look through all the cities and think of anyone you can in that city. If I start selling tickets for this um, early on, we can maybe make adjustments, maybe hit some more cities, maybe add more shows. This is going to be a big deal. I'm going to be promoting it on uh, some very, very big podcasts coming up, by the way. Um, I, I don't they're huge i i don't want to uh i don't want to say what i'm going to be on um just yet because they haven't actually been recorded so i don't want to jinx myself but i just did um doug loves movies and and duncan trussell's family hour i'm doing a whole bunch more really really big podcasts uh that i'm very excited about it's going to get a lot of attention for this podcast and this tour so please keep up with me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, by the way, even if you don't have a Twitter account um, um, or if you don't use yours, add me on Twitter. Even if you're not interested, you don't maybe you don't follow comedians on Twitter or, or whatever, add me so you're following me. You can mute me if you want. I don't care. If I have more followers, that makes my life way easier as far as booking things. That's something that... that you know, club owners look at. It's something that people look at when considering making a comedy special about a show um, called A Good Trip, potentially. So things like that really help me out. Keep on pumping out those reviews for the podcast and stuff too, the, all those ratings. That makes a huge difference. So thank you guys and enjoy today's episode. Oh, I almost forgot. I forgot this during the interview, and um, and then I almost forgot just now. The charity of the week is the National Parkinson Foundation. Um, obviously, Parkinson's horrible, um, horrible and debilitating, and so many people in this country and around the world living with it. Um, I want to learn more about Parkinson. I. I don't know nearly enough about Parkinson's disease. I, I am trying to find, I actually have someone in mind, um, to have a whole episode on it. Uh, I would, I would like to start doing a few more episodes like that, with kind of specific, uh, specific diseases and ailments and that sort of thing. Um, working on all that for the, for the big tour, by the way, getting a whole bunch of guests when I'm around. So hopefully we're going to get in some bonus episodes before the, rest before the end of the year um all right enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm at UCLA talking with Associate Professor of Communications. Greg Bryant is joining me. Thank you, Greg. Hey, how you doing? I'm wonderful. So um, you you do, uh, amongst many things, you do a bit of... Uh, a bit of work and, and something. We, we have a bit of a crossover here. I'm a comedian, and you study laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, we've had, uh, we've had, we've had some um, psychologists talking about what makes things funny before. We've had a couple episodes on on laughter and how jokes are produced in the mind and a bunch of different things. But your your work is um, uh, is unique and different something we haven't covered yet can you talk a little bit about um what is it about laughter that you study okay yeah so in particular i'm interested in the sound of laughter um so what are the acoustic features that are important for uh, people when they are listening to laughter and and what kinds of judgments can they make about the people based on those acoustic features so can you tell um, if people are friends by hearing them laugh together, um, can you tell the difference between a fake laugh or a real laugh? Um, I'm interested in what features in the laughs um, make you laugh yourself. Um, I haven't done any empirical work on that yet, but that's coming up. So, um, but I'm really interested in the specific sound features. So, like when someone, so the the stuff that you don't have the empirical work for yet, are you talking like when someone has a distinct, like really funny laugh that's contagious? Not necessarily distinct, but I mean, that probably helps, but just that makes it contagious, that makes you laugh. Once in a while in a show, there'll be one guy or lady in, uh-huh. in the front row who has just the most insane uh, laugh. I was thinking they're in the back. Ever back no, they're always like they're always right in the, in the middle. And I, I'm like, it's, it's, it's great and it's hilarious. But, you but it's also like, laughing, yeah. yeah, then it's, it's also like I'm in the middle of a setup. And now, now that this person started laughing, they can't stop. And their laugh is so funny that everyone's now. No one's not even laughing at my jokes. No. We're all just laughing at this. At this Which person. is good for you, actually. Yeah, it's great. It makes my job easier. And yeah. I'm not going to scold people for people laughing think during, you're funnier <laughs> during of my show. What? So, what kind of what kind of features do you think might? What what are what are you going to be um, testing? Right. Um, well, so. To answer that, let me say one more thing about sure. what I'm interested in, and that is the evolutionary history of laughter. And uh, I'm interested in evolution of behavior and cognition. And laughter is a really great vocalization to study if you're into um, evolutionary communication research with people because it's um, a really evolutionarily old vocalization. It's related phylogenetically to vocalizations in many primates. Probably most social mammals actually have some... Um, vocalization that is um, at least analogous, if not homologous, to laughter, meaning that the reason we laugh is because it's a behavior derived from a common ancestor with all these other social animals um, that has to do with play. Um, So the vocalization is produced by this vocal system that is very evolutionarily old, and the features of laughs that um, provide evidence that it's that vocal system producing it are the ones that people think are the most genuine sounding and probably the funniest. Nobody's ever studied that specifically, but the, um, it's so the, the features themselves have to do with the, the vocal system that's producing it. So the uh, important element of that is the way that you control your breath when you laugh. So when you control your breath during speech, it's very modulated and, 
um, finely controlled because we, when we speak, we need to slowly let our breath out so we don't have to keep taking breaths during our speech stream. But laughter and crying and pain screams and other vocalizations like that um, do not incorporate that breath control, and you can hear it in the vocalization. So not only can you really project and yell, um, you can do that with your speech system also, but um, you you end up having these breathy components in your voice that that have a very distinctive sound that are different from the breathy components of speech. Yeah, it shoots lots of air out of it, especially when you're in a laughing fit and uh, right. like you laugh so hard that you can't breathe. Right. Uh, that it seems like a strange it, it, it seems like a strange thing to evolve to to, to well, like it's a, it's have a byproduct yeah. mechanism. Right. Like it's it's an unfortunate side effect. You know, it's a byproduct of the system. I'm um, crying is the same way, right? Kids will cry till they're literally hyperventilating. Yeah. And um. And so that the breath control between these two different vocal systems are um, is different. And so, um, but other features for laughter that are that are important have to do with pitch, and um, the loudness and the rhythm. Right. So, um, you know, higher pitched, faster laughs sound more genuine, and they are evidence of higher arousal. And so, people think more. Again, nobody's really studied exactly what are the features that make it contagious, but my bet is that it has to do with these features related to arousal. Mm. Um, but there's also, there's voicing. And so a person's voice, some, some people have, um, everybody has a distinctive voice. And so um, everybody's laugh is going to be at least a little different because of that, right? So, um, you know, some people laugh through their nose. Some people laugh, um, you know, out of their mouth more. Some people have more body laughs. And I think the, all these kinds of characteristics that are distinctive, hard to say which ones are more funny than others, just like why some people's personalities are just more funny than others. Well, what, what about the snort? Where, is it, where, does, the, where right. does the laugh snort come right. in? How, how well, does that happen? That's from when you inhale yeah, yeah. back in through your nose as you're, as you're laughing out of your mouth mostly. If someone's snorting, that's a pretty true indicator that they're pretty not true. faking it. Right. I mean, you could fake a snort if you were a real clever laugh faker. That might be a good <laughs> thing to do because you could, you know, it's hard to kind of do that actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that is, shows that you're highly aroused. I, I like the idea of a really uh, like such a sociopath that they've trained themselves to, to laugh right. snort at. right or at least even unconsciously do it right I mean people will mimic other people's personalities and that could be a sociopathic tendency that if you're really good at mim mimicking people and manipulating them then you might just unconsciously track things like the details of the laugh or something else. Well, uh, so laughter is contagious. Do you think that people also? I mean, I, I've, I've even noticed myself on stage. It'll happen sometimes. There's a feature comic like the guy that goes on before me has, has um, it, just it, something in like his, his mannerisms or or just his cadence or something like that. That I'm working with him for a full week, and by the end, I'm I'm noticing myself on stage saying a word or two, sure. and I'm like, "Oh, that sounded." No, like I think that's normal behavior. Everybody does it, right? It's just and, a matter of degree, probably. Do you think that it, does that happen with laughter as Definitely. well? Right. Do you think there's a genetic component because to what uh, uh, to sounding familiar? Because I so my dad's side of the family, uh, listeners have have heard me laugh a lot on here, and and I. I think I have a somewhat distinct laugh. 
but everyone on my dad's side of the family, all of his siblings, they all laugh the exact same way. And it's very distinct. Hmm. And I, it's probably just upbringing, probably their, their dad or something like that. But Well, these things interact, right? So um, it could be that um, because they're all related, they're more likely to, to, to develop similarly. And their, their co-experiences cause them to do that. So it's, um, you know... A group of people that weren't that weren't related at all might also do that, but maybe not as much. Yeah, there's so there's this there's this moss part of the left that's like uh, 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 it's like a snort, but through uh, the, the mouth a little uh-huh. bit. And but an inhaling laugh. Yeah, that's there's, unusual. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> I'm a freak. Right. I, I'm you do a that <laughs> when when I'm really losing it. Yeah, uh-huh. some, sometimes I will. And and um, see, I associate that with a fake laugh because it's sort of. There's a that's a volitionally controlled thing to to vocalize while you're inhaling. You kind of have to think about it to do it. I mean, I think laughter is an really? exception that that because because it's such a in and out process of breathing in and out. Um, so it's easy to laugh inward. Yeah, right? but no, you could, you could talk inward too, but it takes effort. Hello, how are you? Um, I no, I I like people have mocked me for it so it's something like uh-huh. it's something that i if anything probably uh-huh. consciously tried not to you do. remember the movie weird science um yes i chet do bill oh, pullman forever but chet, yeah chet bill pullman yeah, yeah. the actor um chet does inward laughing i mean solely psycho like he's the army older brother dick brother yeah, and yeah. He, like he does those laughs, laughs the inward laughs i use them in my talks because they're so weird um it, it's just striking to me because i just went to visit my aunt who I wonder how many times we've even seen each other in a lifetime because she has always lived in a completely different part of the country, maybe maybe 30 times in, in my lifetime, and she's never around. And I just went to visit her recently, and she is laughing. I was like, oh, that sounds exactly like my dad, and wow. it sounds exactly like uh-huh. the, the Moss laugh. That's a, It's a um, strange th- thing, but I, I was wondering why um, why do people laugh well, okay. Actually, before this question, it's going to make a lot more sense to first set up what's what's the evolutionary purpose of laughter. Right. In humans, it's not totally understood, but it, it, it's pretty clear it has something to do with signaling cooperative intent. Um, it has to do with um, – it interacts with humor, right? So um, Clark Barrett and Tom Flamson have developed this idea of encryption in humor – which um, th- briefly is just the idea that w- when a lot of things in intentional humor have to do with the unstated information, so you can actually um, use humor as a tool to find out what people know and what they don't know by what they laugh at. So now most jokes hmm. are, um, when people are making jokes in interpersonal interactions, um, it's not like they're really assessing the knowledge of the other, but you. But essentially, that's what it's indexing. Because I could say something, and the thing that's funny is not what I say; it's that it's what I imply. And so, if you don't have the information that requires you to understand what I'm saying, then you won't get it, and you'll be confused. But if you do, then it can often um, sort of inspire this feeling of mirth, right? That that causes you, that causes you to actually laugh. So you recognize the humor in somebody's utterance, and then you kind of you can chuckle a little bit, and then now I know you got what I meant. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think in humans, there's something about that social interaction in joking and conversation that laughing is performing important functions. Um, Evolutionarily, it looks like laughter is a play vocalization, um, meaning that animals that are engaging in social play, like rough and tumble play, um, usually with animals, that's mostly what play is, is is like wrestling and stuff. Um, They're producing vocalizations that signal to the other, I am producing these threatening behaviors and displays, but I'm actually not threatening you, right? We're playing right now. So you can think of them as meta signals. So it's a signal that then affects how you interpret future signals. So if you produce this laugh-like vocalizations, which are a lot of times sort of um, in and out breathing patterns, it's sort of labored breathing during play in um, something like, you know, chimpanzee are closest living relatives do this, but so do many other social primates. And it's sort of a... um, you know, they're breathing, but they exaggerated, <laughs> right? And they do that. Then they can actually um, bare their teeth or they can um, bite or scratch or do something that wouldn't, that would normally be interpreted as threat. Right. Um, so they do, they do the meta signal first, then they do that. Then it's considered play. Dogs do a similar thing where they do a play bow, right? So the dogs get down on their front legs um, before they want to play. And then that signals the other dog, we're playing now, and then they can do all this rough stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if the signal doesn't get registered, the dog's getting a fight, right? I mean, you can see the signaling system has to turn it on and off a little bit. And actually, I'm not sure what the off signal is for a play bow. So dogs, sometimes one dog takes it a little too far and then they, there's a fight, right? Yeah, but, but there's sig- just like a yelp or something like that. Like a, you, you hear when a dog like just got stepped on or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Like, ah. Yeah. Or, or, or they actually start fighting because it's like, hey, that wasn't part of the deal here. Right. There's some level of that that's what they're thinking. Um, so laughter is like a play bow on a dog. This is the way I'm interpreting it. Um, that at least at some level it's functioning like that in humans, um, similarly to other primates and, and other social animals. I mean, rats laugh, dolphins, dogs. I mean, lots of animals do behaviors that are similar to laughter. Um, but in humans now it's taken on a more, more complex role that is not well understood in terms of forming social alliances and then the sort of deception that can come along with that. So then we can sort of um, pretend that we think something's funny or we can um, sort of ingratiate. Right. Yeah. That manipulate. And if you're going to get in a fight and you want to get that first punch in, maybe you should be laughing first. That might help. (laughs) Are there primates that do that by chance? Do what? Is that, is that a, that fake a laugh and then actually attack? I I wouldn't think that. I I highly doubt it. Pretty sophisticated. Definitely never documented. And I doubt (laughs) will ever be. Um, I actually, there's not a lot of evidence that, um, any non-human animal produces deceptive vocalizations, um, intentionally deceptive vocalizations. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but there's really not very good evidence for it yet. I mean, the exceptions to that are things like um, alarm calls. Animals will produce yeah, alarm yeah, calls. signals. But, right. But that's a different than... It's a, it's a little different than like the just guitarical kind of vocalization of, of just a triggered response rather than like signaling there's a hawk up there or a snake on the ground. Right. I mean, you know, it is an interesting case where an animal will produce an alarm call when they know there's no predator, and then the animals run, and then they go get the Grab food. The food. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's 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 some good <laughs> shit right there. But um, that's a little different than producing a fake laugh um, 
to make somebody think that that you think they're funny or something like that. It's a little more complex, I think. Yeah, well, it's funny that that I mean, people will just like you more if 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 you're laughing at their stuff. I mean, sure. if, if smile more, laugh more. Two, a couple will never make each other laugh more than in the very early stages of flirtation and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're at a bar and and you know, you and a girl That's are huge. kind of digging each other and and you know, say something somewhat funny, and she right. starts dying in hysterics. Like, yeah, that wasn't. I know right. that wasn't that funny. And then you get into the relationship, and those jokes don't land like they used to. <laughs> Sometimes backfire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Um. It, I think there's there's a sex difference there. At least research suggests there's a sex difference too. That women um, appreciate that more. That like women want men that make them laugh. That's more important to them than men wanting women that make them laugh. Mm. I think that's important too. But I think there's a slight asymmetry there. Yeah, I um, wonder why that is. Um, I mean, yeah, it's there's there's sexual selection on displaying your cleverness and your wit and your intelligence and right. your affinity for certain kinds of culture or whatever it might be and, and this isn't to say that like guys don't value a sense of humor in women or anything of course like not. That. it's just, it's just a, we're talking about slight varying yep. degrees and um and, and and so so guys are just a, a bit more surface level <laughs> just kind of a, a little more um into the physical attraction right and things. it's also in, in a lot of things there's just slight differences and it's not necessarily that one's physical and one's not i think that's true as well what you just said but um you know it's just there's slightly different preferences because there's different adaptive problems to be solved in mating you know um so i i want to understand more when you were saying um about the context um exactly what what you're as far as what information can be gotten from how much someone knows like so it, I'll, I'll take it back to stand up so sometimes Sometimes you'll do a joke and it just doesn't work or, or it works okay, but you can't believe this isn't mm-hmm. working. And right. then one day you'll just tweak a word or you'll be like, oh, oh, maybe they aren't understanding this part of there it. You and you fill in just a little bit more context right? and and then it, that finally works. But then there's other times that that you have, say, just like a movie reference or an obscure, you know, some sort of obscure reference. That you know most of the room isn't going to get, but it's just a little tag or something, and and so um, you know those people that you you do that do laugh. It's like a little wink, wink. We're we're in on that one, you know. Exactly. It's just like a little added bonus. Is that right. kind of that's that's totally what we're talking about here? Yeah. So um, how much? I mean, you know, the old rule in comedy is that if you have to explain the joke, then I mean, it's no longer funny. Right. <laughs> and you ruin jokes by overdoing them. Yeah. Right. Or if you, when you explain the joke to somebody, it's not, they go, well, that's not funny. It's like, well, yeah, I just explained it to you. Right. right. So this theory actually is unique amongst theories of humor that predicts that exactly. But, um, the thing is, is that, yeah, so, the, um, they've done some work. Um, Tom Flanson and Clark have done some work looking at, um, how you manipulate previous knowledge and then you have people rate how funny certain things are. And um, when, when, you, when you know the information and then it's not actually present in the joke, that makes it the most funny, right? So if you have to explain it, if you give a little information first, then people can still think the joke is funny, but not nearly as much as they, unless they have the information already. Mm. And then how much you encrypt it matters. So if you, by encryption, I mean you, you're hiding the information um, in – in what you say literally 
Um, if the more you provide literally, then the less funny it is to people that have the information already. Hmm. Yeah. So there's this interaction between how much you know and how much you need in the joke to make it funny. Um, there's there's kind of an opposite reaction um, regarding that. I, I have my own theory about really clever puns and the oh reaction or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and I think because sometimes um, sometimes in comedy people will will laugh because other people are laughing and certainly maybe they're like, Oh, this is a smart joke. I don't, I don't quite get well, it. You want so, to pretend I, I, that... so, so you want, you want to have this kind of false advertisement that you do have this. That's information. right. That's where the fake laugh comes in. Too, and, yeah. but I think sometimes when, and I'm not, I'm not a pun guy. Um, I have, I have some friends that are just uh, linguistic geniuses that have very, very mm-hmm. clever, very quick puns. And, um, mm-hmm. like my friend, Mike Kaplan's a good example. My brother he, can do that. It's crazy. It's just not my forte, but, no. but, um, it's interesting when you see like groans and stuff to that, I kind of think that what might be happening is that because it takes a second to get, like, you don't want to, and then you do get it. And then you realize that it was funny, but you don't want the person to know that it took you that long to get it so instead uh-huh. you go oh you know like make the, this noise like i got it i just didn't think that was funny that's why i didn't laugh uh-huh. you know what i mean interesting i mean th- there's a convention there's like this conventional or well, i don't know what what, what do you call it it's sort of a stereotype the puns are the lowest form of humor or whatever without i've always thought that was sort of unfair because puns can be actually rather hard to come up with on the spot and mm-hmm. if somebody that's good at it that's good and it's not something that stupid people are good at. Yeah. <laughs> so, no. I mean, it is evidence of, of in- verbal intelligence, you know? So for some re- but the thing is, is that anybody can make a shitty pun, right? right. And so that's what the, that thing people groan over that there's so many puns out there that are bad, right? Yeah. That the appreciation for the good ones is, is hard to find. Yeah. That, that's part of it. And there's a little bit of a cultural difference too in, um, if, if you go, if you go around like, uh, go to a comedy club in say London, you're going to see a lot more puns and, and a lot of like right. really clever wordplay. There, yeah, yeah. There's a bit of back padding <laughs> and, right. and stuff in, involved um, that doesn't work as well. But yeah, like, uh, my friend, Mike Kaplan, who, who has a master's degree in, lin- in linguistics and, and um, my, I have another friend. The, these are two people that made the theme song for my podcast. Zach Sherwin, who's this amazing rapper. And it, he's a genius comedy rapper. And, uh, and thinks of puns like crazy. And some of them, I look at them and they're silly, but he's, he's far better with language than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you do, you do some work with, um, with irony as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's sort of how I started really thinking about laughter. The irony stuff was my dissertation. Oh, okay. It was on, um, the vocal signals of, of sarcasm, basically vocal signals of iron. I call I, Sarcasm is a subkind of verbal irony. Oh, I know so much about that. Why do people talk like this when they're <laughs> when they're? Why, why does that happen? Is that is that what you're talking about? Studying that kind of thing. It's that, sort of like what what, what vocal? What do you do with your voice that helps signal that you're being sarcastic? Like oh, nah, you know. So people mm-hmm. the, the the stereotype is people lower their voice and slow down and maybe get more nasally. Right. It's just like you know, nice shoes or whatever. Yeah. But, um, 
And I think some of those things are a little bit true. So, um, but I've I've been studying. Um, I haven't done this in a while. I do have a new paper actually on this, but somehow I keep writing about irony, even though I'm kind of over it. Um, How ironic! Yeah, no, nah, not really. <laughs> not especially. No. I have another that, paper on situation irony. That was, that was irony. a true groaner oh, right there. Yeah. I just wanted to give an example of well, of, of a, a valid groan. I have another um, some other research mm-hmm. on, on concept on situational irony, which is different than verbal irony. Yeah, the whole it's a whole ironic nightmare. But it, actually, um, I'm curious. But, but so, what well, are you talking about? Okay, I'll get I'll get to the situation irony. But what I'm talking about is the sarcasm or or um, or other kinds of verbal irony like. You know, um, you know, you're like eating a whole pizza, and I go, "Are you hungry?" You know, right? Um, rhetorical questions that don't require an answer. Um, so, um, what I'm, I was interested in when I did this work in my dissertation was what do people actually do in spontaneous speech? So, all the research on that and a lot of other things that are like emotional voices and other kinds of um, of things with the voice, people use actors in the research, and and, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that using actors is not good because actors do different things than people in real life. So, um, so I was working with a woman, Jean Foxtree, who specialized in spontaneous speech, looking at how people actually talk. And that was one of the things I liked about her research and why I started working with her. And so when I started looking at sarcasm, I want to look at it in real speech. How are you getting this real speech? Uh, Well, in the work that I did there, I, I got it from conversations I recorded um, so I recorded conversations in the lab and, um, that's the same conversations that I've got my laughs from my most recent paper. I've been mining that, those conversations for 12, 12 years now. Um, so just all of your lab mates and stuff, you just, no, I get students come, would come in, oh, we have thought... a subject pool, okay. we get people and then I controlled whether they knew each other or not. So I had friends talking or I had strangers talking I and see. all different sex combinations. Just put, set them down and say, talk about whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you are struggling to find a topic, you can talk about bad roommate experiences. I was trying to elicit irony, like, oh, yeah, my roommate. I really love living with that guy. Um, so <clears throat> that's how I got my spontaneous sarcasm. I, I have a couple papers where I got it off talk radio, too, but I stopped doing that. Mm. And so <clears throat> with the irony thing, I found that people do slow down when they're using irony. So you will slow your speech yeah. down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the main thing is that people change their voice from whatever they're doing before they're ironic. So you want to create a contrast so then you know, I'm kind of using a different voice now, which indicates I mean something other than what I'm literally saying. Um, so if you're, if you're talking low, I might say something, you know, all of a sudden I raise my voice and then that indicates I mean something different. Hmm. Um, so I found that these contrasts are actually what a better way to characterize what people are doing with the voice for the ironic tone of voice, but except slowing down seems to always happen. Do you think that that is something that came naturally or, or is that something, is that, is that something that we learn or probably, I mean like everything probably. Those are, those aren't mutually exclusive to me. Yeah. 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 Um, So, Right. I, I see what you're getting at. And I think, the I, an- I mean, it, have you noticed, do you know, is there any cultural differences in, in that? Have, um, do you know anything about how? Um, right. It, there's a little bit of work. And- there's a little bit of work on that. And it shows that there's cultural variability in how people mark sarcasm in their voice. Um, so far, I think being, slowing down is pretty robust. That seems to come up everywhere. Um, and I have a couple explanations that I don't think we're going into and why that might be true. But um, what I think is going on is that, um, you know, 
we have the capacity to read each other's minds, right? So um, I can imagine what you know and what you're thinking and how you might interpret what I'm going to say, and you're doing the same thing back to me. And by virtue of having conversational agents, so to speak, that have this mind-reading capability, you're going to get all these different kinds of behaviors in language use that exploit that fact, right? So I'm going to say, I'm going to make jokes that where the implied meaning is something that um, only you can know if you have this certain piece of knowledge. The only reason you're going to think it's funny is if you have this certain piece of knowledge. Um, Or I can say something where um, you know that I'm not literally asking you that question, but I'm pointing out something about your behavior right now. You're, you're wolfing down this whole pizza and I say, are you hungry? And so I'm making a joke about how you're eating really fast without directly saying you're eating really fast. Mm. But because you know that, that I can, that, that, uh, I can mean things that are different from what I say, and you know that I recognize that ability in you that, that affords all these different kinds of, of language tr- tools that we can use to communicate our meanings in the most efficient way. Well, it's also, I mean, in that particular example that you use, you're using sarcasm as, as a way of kind of, uh, give it, giving someone a hint kind of without, without being mean about it, kind of letting, uh, you know, exactly. le- letting both parties, you, you and the other party off the hook a little bit, not, not right. necessarily embarrassing them. You're just right. making, making a little jab, but like, uh, you know, Hey roommates, uh, you know, maybe someone else can uh, get some toilet paper around here one of these days. Yeah, exactly. Little things. Um, I I think sometimes sarcasm is also used a little bit as an insult. I well, because I was thinking, Certainly. I wonder, I wonder if that's why sometimes it's elongated. Because if you're, it it's kind of ironic to be dismissive in this elongated way where where you're you're kind of saying like something's not important but you're like oh this is so important like you're right you're kind of right by making it bigger you're making it kind of seem right sound also, more important but it's that's but right it's not that's right exactly you, you you're making it grandiose or something right. which exa- which then sort of illustrates how not grandiose it really is. Yeah. Yeah. It could also be that you use your voice to make sure the other people, the person understands your meaning. So you could say that that's really important that you do that. Then you might go, Oh, that sounds like you're being serious. They go, that's really important. (laughs) Then, you know, I'm, you know, exactly. But yeah, I could say that's really important. Now the thing is those exaggerated things, that's what actors do that real people don't do very often. So that's a good example of how people might say, well, oh, you're you being... mean when an actor is attempting to act sarcastic, they overact. I see. I see. Okay. Right. So, and, and way you see it in movies, um, depending on the movie and the way the acting is, but you know, a lot of comedies would have people portraying a sarcastic voice. I mean, they're, they're portraying a person that's being sarcastic and they're doing it in a way that most people would never do right? because they're overdoing it. Even as a, it, this is basically every standup does this. You, you, you try very hard to be yourself on stage and everything else for, right. for most people anyway, for the most part, but still what you end up doing is kind of this exaggerated character Version, of right. who you actually are. Right. Um, so, so getting, so, so getting these real, conver- that's, that's the importance of getting these real conversations. So you, you get these real conversations and yep. then, and then where did you go from there? Uh, well, in that case, I just extracted every single instance of verbal irony I could find in them. And then I did acoustic analyses, just real basic acoustic analysis of the speech uh, during the target uh, ironic speech and then the speech just before it. 
and then a section of speech just before that. And then I can kind of see how much are they changing your voice from moment to moment. And I predicted that they would be doing it more in certain ways um, when they're speaking ironically, um, which is, and that's basically what I found is that um, people, when they're ironic, they slow down and they will change their pitch more than they had changed b- between two utterances before that. Mm. Um, and, and then that was basically it for the dissertation, but now I've done some stuff where I'm manipulating the vocal characteristics and asking people to judge the irony in them. And again, people, um, when they hear a slowed version of an utterance, they, they don't hear both. They hear either one or the other and slowed versions are judged as more ironic. Um, so, so you can just record me saying like, Oh, that's really interesting. And then you can tweak it and slow it down. Or is right. that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. Except doing? I would, I got real, um, utter ironic utterances. So when people were really being ironic in the speech, mm. um, in their conversational speech that I recorded, I would take those little t- snippets of them being ironic. And then I can manipulate those to be slower or faster and then have listeners judge, judge how ironic it is. And if you made them faster, that would would slower. Would they is still more pick up on the? Would they still pick up on the irony, or would they think that it was serious? Um, yeah, uh, I'm actually. Um, they they might still pick up on the irony, but they think it's more ironic when it's slow. Okay. Um. So I'm I'm starting to pick up on how this is related to some of your um your other work that I wanted to ask well, you about. Well, so let me connect it yeah. to the laughter real quick. So that when I first started thinking about laughter, one thing I noticed when I was extracting all this irony out of these conversations is that a lot of the time when people were being ironic, they laughed right before or after. Mm. And so I, I realized this was also a marker of irony. And then I have other, the same study where I looked at the fast versus slow um, speech. I also insert laughter or not. And people, when they hear the laughter, they think it's more ironic. And so the idea is that laughter is a verbal play signal where you are, um, you're signaling now I'm going to play and I might say something that you shouldn't take literally and might not, or, you know, it's not threatening or it's not critical or it's not, it's, it's not necessarily what it seems on the surface. I mean something else. And so I'm playing now. So if I kind of laugh and I start laughing and I start being ironic, I might be able to say some stuff that I otherwise wouldn't be able to say to you. Right. Right. Then you laugh out afterwards. Without cre- just a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the toilet paper example is great. It's just like if you're laughing and kind of go, you know, maybe somebody else could buy some toilet paper around here. It's different than saying, hey, can you buy toilet paper? I've been buying it and now I'm sick of buying it and you should buy yeah. it. You know, that's more harsh and critical. Right, right? right. You can use laughter and humor to sort of get the point across and still be like, we're, we're cool. Mm. Um, and so I started thinking about laughter like that. And, and then I, then I decided in these conversations, just take every laugh out of the conversation and analyze them. And so, um, and it was about, it was 41 conversations and I got, um, a couple thousand laughs out of it. And, um, I used a subset of those in, in these experiments I did just recently, um, with a cross-cultural experiment. Um, yeah, what were the cross-cultural experiments that you did? You went to other countries and stuff and, and other cultures, and you played some of these recordings? Right. Know? So I took um, um, instances where people who either knew each other or didn't were laughing together, co-laughter. And so um, people do co-laughter um, quite a bit. If you know each other, people will laugh together. Um, strangers do it a lot less. But um, I ended up grabbing uh, 48 um, laugh samples, half of which were between people who knew each other and half were between strangers who had mm-hmm. just met. And um, they averaged about one second long each. Um, and, and so then I played those for listeners and just said, 
can you tell whether these people are friends or strangers? And um, uh, can you plan for me, actually? Sure. Where those some of the... Yeah. And so um, the question was simple. They just had to say whether they were friends or strangers. And what I found is that people could make that judgment really accurately based on just hearing one second of laughter. Okay. And so then um, I, I ran that a few times here to actually make sure it was real. And, um, and then we... Um, um, this is in collaboration with Dan Fessler, who's an anthropology here. Um, and he has a network of anthropologists and psychologists and other scholars around the world. And so this was an easy experiment to run. We just, I made the experiment, um, you know, using software that I could then email to them and then they can run the experiment at their university or whatever and um, send me back the data. And so we did that in 24 different, well, 23 plus here, um, 23 different societies. We ran the experiment where people just asked, were asked the simple question of whether people were friends or strangers. And and we gave it to several anthropologists, so we ran it in Papua New Guinea and um, um, with the Himba in Africa and the Hadza. Um, we have a couple, um, three or four South American populations and and then places all over Europe and, a- and Asia, Australia. I'm feeling there's a, a lot of pressure on me to get this right now, um, the, this quiz. Um, it's easy. It, it's easy. I wasn't even going to quiz you, but I can do that. Yeah, I, I want, okay, I let's, want a little quiz. Okay, let's, let's quiz you here. Okay, here is, here's one. See, friends or strangers? <laughs> oh, I, I don't listen to both of them? No, that's the co- they're laughing together. Oh, that's it, that's a real co laugh in conversation. Oh, okay. Um, I don't get to hear both of them first. I would say that was friends. You mean hear both of them individually? The oh, I thought you were playing me too. Both the friends. And oh no, I was just one. the way we did it in the experiment is you just play one and then you have to choose friends or strangers. Oh, Not, I, I would say friends on that one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um. Um, strangers. Yep, that's it. Sounded a little fake. <laughs> Play that one again. Sorry, that's all right. I don't like this player. This is some new Windows Ten bullshit. <laughs> uh, that one was harder. I would say that, that was strangers. That's as a well. tough one. Good guess, though. That you're right. It's strangers, but that is, I think that is a tough one. And I bet. I I can't say off the top of my head, but I bet if I went and looked at the data, there would be a lot of mistakes on that, that one. Was an in between one. Yeah, um, and so how about this one? That's all I get. That's all you get. Uh, friends, you're getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, oh, you can't read the screen. No, I can't. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's basically the idea there, and so um, that worked pretty. Not pretty much everywhere. That worked everywhere. Now there was variation in performance, and, um, um, but but yeah, people were getting the right answer on average about sixty percent of the time. But um, you know, some places were uh, the lowest we had. I think was like fifty five percent or something, which is better than chance, but not great. And then other places were up in like you know seventy five, eighty percent. But the one interesting thing was if it was two women, there was a, a bias in every society to say that they're friends on average just holding everything constant they were a little more likely to say friends when they heard two women and that 
caused them in part to get the right answer more when the answer when when it was two women. So the um, rate of correct responses when they adhere to women was something like um, 78% mm. overall. And in the United States, when I first did the experiment, I couldn't believe it. I mean, people got the right answer 95% of the time. When it was two women, they got the right answer 95% of the time. And um, what, what were the rates with men? Um, like 70 or something like mm. that. Not good, but not as good. Yeah. It, do you have any ideas about why that is? Well, I think the bias to, to think women are friends, women are more friendly or something like that is influencing that. Mm. Um, Maybe women are more friendly. <laughs> right. But it could also be that women are better at communicating that. Yeah. And so m- women and men can hear it. Right. Um, and so – you know, when when women do laugh together, so there's a little bit of research looking at how co-laughter develops in relationships, and um, some work has shown that women t- take longer to do it very much. So women can take up to six weeks to be friends before they really start co-laughing together. And really? So, yeah, isn't that that's a trip, isn't it? Huh. Um, and men, on the other hand, will co-laugh immediately together. Right, I mean, two guys bro down in the bar. Oh yeah, no, no problem. And Shots that women all women around. are yeah. less like that. Um, And so there's something about when you hear two women laugh that you can actually – it might be better evidence that they're friends than if you hear two men laugh. They might have just met. Maybe. Huh. There's other – There's other. I mean, there's this is a whole related um, field of looking at cooperation um, and how sex differences in cooperative behavior. And men and women cooperate differently. So men will cooperate um, quicker with other men than women will cooperate with other women. Well, or maybe for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you um, you'll you'll you know be at the bar and you'll get in a fight with a couple other guys as you're on your side, you know, that you've never met before, right? Um, I mean, men are stupid like that. Yeah, right. right. Um, you'll form alliances really quick, mm-hmm. um, whereas women tend to um, take their time and then also maybe form more long-lasting bonds. It does seem to me like. Female, females friendships are more important than male. It, it seems that way. To, I mean, most women I've ever dated, the their female friends, they'll be calling on the phone all the time and be talking forever. And I mean, there's, I have tons of great friends. I have no interest in talking to them on the phone for an hour at a time, like five times a week or, no. or whatever. You know, yeah, exactly. So, so maybe because. Maybe because that connection eventually is stronger, maybe maybe they're a bit more discriminating in the right. in the beginning, and they're good at signaling it hmm. to each other, which can be picked up. Huh. Um, so my my idea coming into this project um, originally was just that laughter has always been thought of as something that happens between pe- people in a conversation or in a group, but nobody's really said before that laughter could be important for audiences that are not in the group laughing, right? So you're at a you're again at a bar. I like bar examples. Um, you're at a bar and you see a bunch of people laughing together. I'm getting information about them. Right. And nobody ever talks about how laughter might be functioning maybe for that in part. Right. So people, you people are sharing some joke and they're signaling that they all have some shared experience. They like each other, having they're, they're cooperating probably. Um, and they're an alliance. Um, there could be some function where that chorus of laughter is designed for the audience. Right. right? They're, it's not like, um, I mean, 
I guess there could be exceptions to this, but people are not thinking about that when they're laughing, like how, oh, these other people are going to hear us laughing. They're going to know now we're friends for better or worse. But sometimes a group of people could laugh directly at other people, right? Mm. So um, I started thinking about what kinds of things you could learn about people by hearing them laugh together and how sensitive are people to picking up that information. It turns out they're really sensitive to it. I It's making me remember this this one particular example that I've... <laughs> It's funny because this is probably the second or third time I've shared this on the podcast. So now I'm I'm really letting my audience know how little I get hit on in life um, <laughs> because I'm using the same example. But I remember one time it just really stuck out to me because women typically aren't this forward to strangers. Maybe after a show, maybe after a woman see me perform or something like that and is impressed and blah, blah, blah. But, but I was I was just at a bar with some with some friends and I just happened to be telling a funny story and I was kind of holding court a little bit and like everyone was kind of you know some some ladies and guys around me laughing at whatever story I was telling and this very attractive woman just like split right in the middle of them and was like excuse me do you have a girlfriend I was like whoa that that never happens but I I guess if there's a crowd of people standing around you laughing that's probably some indicator of of you know some sort of value or right. you know, an interesting person or something right. like that so yep. I, I guess it, it you know what's interesting with that i wanted to ask you about was what about when what about when you don't want to laugh at someone like something embarrassing or something like that happens for and you you would feel bad but it's so funny you can't control it anyway that's just a byproduct of of this of how uncontrollable laughter can be well, if it's just you and that other person, then yes, in some sense, probably mostly a byproduct because the signal is actually going to be, you know, detrimental for you as right. a sender. But if you have other people there, right, then maybe it um, that that that's contributing to it, right? So if you and your friend are trying not to laugh at your third friend, then that's solidarity. That's something about you and your friend. Um, communicating something yeah. to one another um, at the cost of your third friend, right? And, yeah. and and you can imagine that situation where it'd be way harder to contain your laughter if there's another person there who also might be wanting to laugh, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, it's like getting the giggles in a funeral or in court or whatever. I mean, I have just have this very uh, kind of uh, classic example um, where I was in court and my brother was my legal guardian at the time, so he had to go to court with me. And um, he was 24 and I was 16, so we were both kids, essentially. I didn't think of it that way at the time. Right. But um, we got the giggles in court because the judge was was doofus. And so he started saying weird stuff, and so we started saying weird stuff to each other, and we got the giggles, and we almost got kicked out of the courtroom Yeah, the giggles, you know. I've but... been there. I, and there's something with that... Uh with the tension of like being in trouble for something too, it makes where... it more funny yeah i mean i've 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 been i've had this in relationships too where where uh, uh a girl is upset with me about something or other it, it doesn't matter it, it's been a variety of things uh, that's triggered this where i start laughing a little bit like like say they think i was um uh what's a good example like had had a crush on some other girl or you know was flirting with some other girl or mm-hmm. something they're getting like jealous that. or something yeah yeah and and i start laughing because i'm uncomfortable 
Right. Not, not because I actually was. Right. And 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 my um, I think I've talked about this on the show before. My grandma, um, on my dad's side, another mosses have the weird weirdest laughs. But we, um, she would always when, you know, she was older, and you know, every time we saw her, she had some news of a friend dying off or whatever. There was always like this little bit of like a laugh that came along with. Clearly, she wasn't happy about this news, or she wasn't laughing about their death, or whatever trouble that they were right. going through. But it's just—it was also just kind of this way of releasing tension, or right. dealing with. Yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's part of the the beauty of laughter, and also the difficulty in studying it, is because it's such a complex vocalization that can happen in any context, mm. and it can be associated with any emotion. And why why laugh uh, to yourself if it's a signal? Like I. I'm out and about in public. I think of some something funny, and I I'll start laughing to myself sometimes. And like I catch myself, like it, it, because I look I like a myself. lunatic, you know. And uh, and and it's like a little embarrassing instead. Like well, because it, it is of... what a lunatic would do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean if you do it, you're a lunatic. <laughs> right, right. You're you're just doing. A I laugh to myself all the time. Behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Uh, maybe I'm a lunatic. No, it's one of my favorite parts of my job is is making myself laugh. Uh, sure. I. I get off on that more than making an audience laugh most right and some that might be harder sometimes and easier other times right i mean to make yourself laugh right mm-hmm. i mean just because it made you laugh doesn't mean it's funny but maybe you could be your own harshest critic and if you think it's funny maybe it is i so think the, the we, reason we laugh and the reason people talk to themselves and laugh to themselves um, um i mean there's no there's no definite scientific answer to that question it's tough but my take is that there's um what some people call the implied social other, meaning that we act as if there is another person. We're simulating. There. That's right. Situ- At like some level. P- possible future situation. We're, we're such social animals that, and, and we're actually, um, it, we're socially connected, um, even and today especially, even though you're by yourself, I'm on a computer, I could be communicating with somebody in a second. Right. Um, and so it's like your brain sort of treats the environment as there's always a social agent around you. And so a lot of the behaviors could get triggered that, that would, are social behaviors, even in context when you're not by yourself, mm. when you are by yourself. And children and some adults have imaginary friends. and Sure, right. Uh, hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I guess... It's a strong force, even when there's no physical presence. I guess there, there's, there is just that benefit too of of just kind of planning ahead. I, I mean, uh, I've had many times in my life where I, where I think of a, think of like a hypothetical social situation that might occur sometime in the future, and then you, I mean, this is kind of the foundation of when I was a child, like be, before I knew I wanted to be a comedian, or or when I first kind of got the idea that maybe I wanted to be a comedian, or when I was trying to like not get bullied at the playground or whatever, kind of simulating, okay, what am I going to do next time to say something witty or quick or clever, right? You know, to, to, to work that through ahead of time with no one there, then there's no cost involved. Right. Then if you're making yourself laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. um, so, so how, how does all of this then, tra- this is, this is going to seem like a little bit of a gear shift here um, right. as we're, as we're wrapping up. But, but I think now that we've, covered all of this it i i'm seeing how it's a bit related um you do some work with infant directed speech mm-hmm. right um, can you talk a little bit so what is infant directed speech for the right listeners? so infant directed speech is uh the way that adults and other ki- adults and and older children will modify their speech when they're speaking to an infant 
So um, typically what caregivers will do is things like raising their average pitch. Um, we like to share, don't we? Exactly. Yeah. Right. You slow it down. Um, raise the pitch. Um, sometimes you lower the pitch if it's uh, if if you're doing a prohibitive, for example, when you want a baby to stop doing something. And no, you know, you might do an exit. If I if if you were reaching for something I didn't want you to touch, and I go no, you know, to you, that would be weird, right? But I'm so I'm lowering the pitch, and um, a lot of people think of infant directed speech as just high pitch. It can include lower pitch, but it, it's also um, using more melody, uh, more exaggerated prosody, right? So. Um, and it can also include um, different kinds of words you use, uh, diminutives. You make things little, right? You could say, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head. You know, the bookie wookie or whatever. You know, mm. you, people will um, add syllables, and um, there's all sorts of different things that, that people can do. So it's just the way we modify our speech to infants, and um, it's something I've looked at cross culturally, and um, and what what. What I find is that people everywhere, when they use infra-directed speech, do the same kinds of things, right? Um, most places will, um, for example, slow, slow down their speech. Um, again, that, 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 that's kind of a coincidence that I find an irony slowing down is the common thing. Also, infra-directed speech slowing down is a common thing, but that's a coincidence. But, um, yeah, I, slowing down just makes sense if you're talking to a child that doesn't right. have the verbal skills. Yep. And, and, and you higher pitch um, for certain – so it depends on the utterance. So if you um, are um, – Producing a what we call an approval, so you're you know what a good boy, you know it's kind of the similar way we talk to our pets, right? Yeah, I was I wanted to ask you about that. Do you? There's so, a study on that actually. Do you yeah. do you think that that so you talk about all of these different um, you know primates and then uh, you know, you hear talk, people talk about um, rats laughing and and whether that's actually laughter or not, I, I guess is up for debate. It's a, little a play bit, vocalization. But it seems like some sort of. I'd say it's. As much laughter as any other non-human, right? So vocalization. So if this is kind of this, uh, I, I mean, most mammals have a very, very similar stress response system. It, could it be that so, we have some of these same systems across species? Where, it, I, what I'm asking is, if is is the dog trained? And again, I know it's the answer is going to be both probably. But is, is the is the dog learning that when i lower my voice or do you think it's in there already right no it's a great question so the idea is that there is a form function relationship in vocalizations meaning that the um the acoustic form for in the case of sounds the acoustic form is related to its communicative function so if you want to interrupt behavior for example then you can produce a loud abrupt low frequency sound that will interrupt behavior in any mammal that has got the same kind of nervous system structure, right? Mm -hmm. It startles them. There's a startle reflex. So a dog will get startled, a baby will get startled, a chinchilla will get startled, right? And so um, you expect that there'll be some similar kinds of features in vocalizations that have that functional component in them. There'll be those similar acoustic features that, that achieve that. So I think infra-directed speech is exploiting that fact in human babies. Um, you want them to hear it. You, um, you want to you know, penetrate the noisy environment with, with um, certain kinds of yeah, that sounds, makes for example, and loud sounds. Um, if you want to soothe the baby, you want to induce relaxation in them. So you produce a sound that sounds soothing, right? 
So you, you know, it's okay, calm voice, mm. low amplitude, um, probably not super high frequency necessarily, though still nurturing. Yeah, it just sounds soft and kind You want it soft, exactly. And the same thing is true for any mammal. Um, you want to um, induce relaxation. You produce sounds that, that, that reflect relaxation in the body that's producing it, right? So mm. if I'm relaxed, I produce sounds that reveal it, then I can induce relaxation in you. And so that's the principle I think that that is shared across species, and also um, in why infradirected speech has the sounds it does. Yeah, well, it's interesting the way in which brains and probably many species put together these these metaphors that cross uh, that that go across so many different realms of of uh, uh, different forms of communication and interpreting different things. Like if I say someone is bright or has a sunny disposition or or is it deep or dark or something like that these are right. all we we tend to make um uh, these these metaphors uh, i i guess i never thought of and the, which is something that i'm fascinated by and i there's been a bunch of studies about that but but uh i, n- I never thought of the idea of of uh sound being the same way of soft sound feeling soft mm-hmm. and and cuddly and then just a hard like boom pop Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a a big paper just came out this week. Um, I don't know who the first author is. Morton Christensen is on it. Um, And it is in PNAS about sound symbolism across thousands of languages. And so you see the same kinds of sounds come up um, in languages that are not related. I mean, are very distantly related. Like the, the evolutionary trajectory, the cultural evolutionary trajectory is not predicting the relationships between the sounds and the concepts that they encode. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's not arbitrary. Even the sounds of speech are not arbitrarily related to the meaning, which is sort of one of these classic um, um, features of language is that it's arbitrary. It's arbitrariness, right? That the sound has no actual inherent connection to the meaning of the word. Um, but it turns out that if you look in the right way, the, um, the sounds do relate even to the meanings of words and, and also to p- intentions. And so um, in the case of, of babies, um, or I was going to say, in the case of dogs, you're asking about whether it's learned or whether it was sort of genetically in there. And I think it's both, again, and the reason is because dogs are artificially selected to pay attention to human signals. Oh, of course. So yeah. They're better at right. it than cats, for example. Cats, I think, probably could give a shit about directed pet directed speech. <laughs> my dog is very sensitive to my voice. She can recognize the very subtle nuances in an emotional tone. Um and I and I think she's probably pretty good at it. Um, she's a small breed dog. They're like they're into that. They're attuned to emotions in different ways. I think than some of the larger breeds. But all dogs are good at, at human vo- vocal commands, mm. um, better than wolves. And so there's something about artificial selection that's bred that out of them, or I mean, bred it into them, right. or selected for it is a better way to put it. Um, and it relies on the same principles that allows babies to be good at it too. Hmm. Um, well, this was, this was a, such a terrific conversation. Um, that's fun. And, uh, yeah, well, I, I, that's as good a time to wrap as any, I would say, I think we, uh, covered a lot of stuff today. So, uh, thank you, Greg. Oh, thanks for having me. Joining me on the program and thank you listeners for being a wonderful, curious, inquisitive, intelligent people. Hey everybody! I had uh, I had some people asking when when um, they might be able to get like a poster or something like that with the uh, uh, for um, for here we are because of the last couple of weeks I've I've uh, 
I announced that I had uh, Ramin Nazer made um, the A Good Trip uh, coloring book and trip journal, and and um, it's based on my act. So if you've already seen The Good Trip show, uh, every picture has to do with my act. Um, and then also... And if you haven't, who doesn't like a good adult coloring book? You know that they put them in in uh, when people are having a bad trip at a music festival, and they they have the the tents that we've talked about on the program before with the Zendo project. One of the things that they do to calm people down is they'll give them like some crayons and colors and stuff like that. It focus, focuses your brain, relaxes you. And I personally like journaling um, when I'm tripping, so that's why I made that. And then I have the leather. Um, DMT molecule keychains that say have a good trip and I'll sign all all that stuff for you. But um, I uh, I had some people asking if I was going to do something for here we are. And so I decided I'd make a have posters made. They're being sent to me um, right this very moment. And they're they're up on my website. Um, it's so I've it's the second it's my new logo for the podcast. The The main logo, the one that we still use is, is the one that you're familiar with, with my face and my, and it's half my face and half the inside, uh, with, without the skin and, and seeing the insides and the brain and, um, you know, all the stuff that we talk about on the show. And, um, but I also wanted a design that wasn't my face on it. And so I had, uh, if you, if you follow me on Facebook, um, which helps a lot, by the way, if you, if you follow me on, on Facebook and Twitter and that kind of stuff, it helps if it, the bigger numbers that I have, even if you don't pay attention to it or ever go on, um, the easier it is for me to say, potentially get, uh, a good trip show made into a special. It helps me get booked in rooms, that sort of thing. And, um, so, so the, uh, the latest design, which you, you may have seen has um it was actually an idea that i had uh from a trip and then executed beautifully by um topher sipes who does amazing he's an amazing visual artist um who i met and he so it's the idea is it's just an eye in the and the iris is is uh earth and a globe and there's a there's a black hole inside of that which is a pupil and then the whites of the eye is like kind of a heavenly white and then the eyelashes are are like the northern lights coming up and it's in space and it looks so cool um so if you want to go to the uh, if you want to go to shane moss m-a-u-s-s dot com i believe it'll be on the here we are podcast dot com website as well a link to the store um check that out i'll i'll write you a message if you want you can pick the message you can tell me who to make it out to anything you want I'll, I'll sign it or if you just want me to sign it or if you don't want me to sign it that's fine as well i'll put it in a little uh, uh a little mailer tube and send it off for you so check into that today and um i i have a i have a podcast i don't know who's um coming up this week because i have um, I have a couple, so unless they unless they both cancel on me, um, we will have an episode next week. Like I said, it's all I can do to um, keep up with this. But as long as no one cancels on me, I 
I should be able to have a um, steady flow of, of podcasts coming in. Um, so yeah, that's about it. And once again, go to Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S.com. This is just such an exciting time for me in my career. And I, um, I, and it's also the most crucial time. I need all the support, um, that I can get. So if, if you guys, um, uh, want a souvenir, or if you want to tell your friends about shows, anything you can do will help tremendously. You guys are the best. Those of you that listen to the end, I mean, whew, you are my absolute favorite. You know that. I'll talk to you next week. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you fuck